as I, as I sat there and worshiping and we, we sing these songs, Spirit, lead me to where my trust is without borders. You know, we, we gather together here week after week that we would grow in the presence of Christ, that he would change us from within, that we would bear fruit, that we would be ambassadors of hope. And I just, as we were singing, I just couldn't help but but think of when Paul writes in Romans 8.32, He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us all, how will he not also with him graciously give us all things? In other words, if we need any more evidence that God wants us to not just exist, but to flourish, that he wants to give us all things, all we need to do is look at the cross and see that we worship a God who held nothing back. Amen. And in response to that, he also calls us to hold nothing back. And, and so this morning we're going to conclude, hopefully we'll see, how I, uh, we'll see how, I, how if I can stick to it. If not, it'll be next week we'll conclude. But we, we began a series called Let It Shine, Let It Shine. And this is part three of that. And hopefully, again, this will be finish up the series that we've been going through. And as a quick recap, if you missed... Last week or the week before, you can listen online, you can also subscribe to our podcast, you can watch it live stream on Facebook, or you can um, download the sermon from the website as well. So there are multiple ways to, to listen if you missed, um, but I would encourage you to go back and listen to the first and second, and as Ruth said, sometimes listening to the sermons, um, you know, you, you hear uh, things and you're able to concentrate and focus, and uh, um, so I would encourage you to do that. But we talked about being an Acts 29 kind of church. In other words, meaning a church that actively lives out the mission of discipleship, that these banners to, to be and make disciples, they're not just, you know, it's not just a, a catchy phrase. It's Jesus' command to us. And it's not just a compartment of our lives. It's not just we do this as part of our lives, but it's the reason we exist, to bring glory to God in our everyday lives. And so he said, church isn't, is something we are. It's not somewhere we go. Church is something we are. It's not somewhere we go. And so we started the first week by talking about the need to integrate spiritual disciplines into our everyday lives if we're to grow and mature as Christians. That this is not optional, that this is essential, that this is not just for some of us, but it's for all of us, that it's expected and we talked about the risks of not developing ourselves, and we talked about the benefits of when we do. And so we said our spiritual walk begins when we allow Christ to shine his light in our lives, and he shows us those areas where we need to change. The gospel is us being aware of our condition, aware of we, of no, we can do nothing for him to restore the relationship that sin broke, that our default settings are self-centeredness. But it's only through trusting in Christ that he begins to develop in us those things that Paul talks about in Galatians 5.22. That as we submit and surrender to him in obedience, we talked weeks back about Shema, means not just to hear, but it was always to hear and obey. It wasn't just to hear and, and sounds came in your, your ears, but it was to hear and process, and as a result, you, you did something different. That's what that word Shema means, to listen and obey. There was always a, uh, 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 an implication that if you heard the word of God, that you would respond to the word of God. And so as we submit and surrender as a continuous process, as we allow God to work through us, 
by spending time feeding our inner selves, we begin to see the fruit of the Spirit grow in our lives. And we choose to walk in the Spirit. And we begin to see what Paul says in Galatians 5.22, this love and joy and peace and patience and kindness and goodness and faithfulness and gentleness and self-control. These things will inevitably become more and more apparent in our lives. That's what will happen. And then people will notice, and it's not if they notice, but it's when they notice. And 1 Peter 3.15 says this, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy. Always be prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks for a reason for the hope that is in you, yet do it with gentleness and respect. This tells us where to begin as Christians by honoring Christ in our hearts, by by living for him in such a way that people will ask you, why are you different? Why do you seem to live with this hope in a world that seems hopeless? And we are prepared. We are ready. Another reason we talked about to know the word. But we're ready to share the gospel. And how do we do it? With arrogance. With, with, uh, you know, with, with um, full control. And with, no, with gentleness and respect. And so this morning we're going to move from the first let it shine. From that inner focus to the second let it shine. To the outer focus. That let it shine initially is allow God to show you where you need to change and grow, to submit and to surrender. And we said that Richard Foster says these disciplines are the doors to liberation. And so we talked last week about the inward disciplines, the the first let it shine of, of meditation and prayer and fasting and study. And those are the things we do primarily alone. But now the second let it shine is where we allow our lives to be an example to others. And so this morning, I want to look in particular at the two outward disciplines of submission and service. It's not optional. It's what's expected. You've heard me say before again and again that the gospel is free, but it's not cheap. That it's a life for a life. That it costs Jesus everything, and he expects it'll cost you everything as well. But at the same time, and we say it again, you know, every week, there's no better life. There is no better way to live than as a follower of Jesus, and I say that with, with no reservation, uh, you know, experientially, have, having, you know, lived all sorts of different ways, there's no better life than living uh, in the will of God, following after him, chasing after him, even in those times when, when that, you know, you can't see, you don't know what the next step's going to be, but you just pray, God, increase my faith, give me that measure of trust that I can live that without borders and just follow after you. And we see the depth of his love, the height and the, and the depth and the width of his love. Amen. All right, let me pray for the sermon. <laughs> Father, we thank you, as Jamie mentioned, for the freedom to gather together to worship you, God. And so, Father, we do that now. We pray that you have your way in this service, that you have your way in each of our lives, God, that, that we be willing to say, search me, God, know my heart. And that you show us those areas where we need to change and grow, God. That the Christian life is is one of growth, is one where we say, more him, less me. And so, Father, again, we, we gather here together to worship you, to be changed by your word, by the power of your Holy Spirit. And so we just pray that you have your way, God. That you anoint this word. And that you bless us as we live it out. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. 
Well, some of you may know about the Barnabas ministry here at church. Uh, right now we have a, a team of people who basically meet when there is a need and they prayerfully respond in, in the best way to meet that need. Uh, they're all different needs and, and they're all different ways that we can respond to come alongside and to help people. Uh, you know, oftentimes if there's a financial need, for example, it's more than just writing a check, but it's coming and maybe helping people budget or, or helping people find a plan out of their, their situation. Or uh, it's more than just meeting financial needs. You know, the, the Barnabas team will give people rides and we'll talk about there's a host of things it does. Right now, the team consists of Bob Davis, Sue Reuter, Darren Fredette, and recently we're blessed to have the addition of, of Bob and Becky Glover to join and so it's a blessing that they've all volunteered to, to help, you know, process these requests. But for those of you who don't know, there's these cards in the back table there. Uh, and, and oftentimes, you know, when, when oftentimes we're willing to help out, but some of us have trouble receiving help. Some of us, and that's a, really a pride issue, whether you, whether you think so or not, or, you know, we don't think of that as being outwardly prideful. But if you can't receive help, that's, that's a pride issue. Um, and but we'd ask that if you if you need help or if you know somebody struggling, you know, because oftentimes we hear or we don't hear until there's a there's a crisis. But you know, somebody loses a job or there's there's a real need, and so you know, we encourage you whether it's for yourself or whether you know somebody within the body here who has a need, you can check it out. There's the Barnabas uh, ministry cards in the back. It's again more than just writing a check. It's also you know it could be you know anything from shoveling the snow to uh, you know, rides to the doctor's appointment to, you know, all sorts of things. We've had people, you know, who had car trouble and somebody would help, you know, fix, fix the, the car. And so basically, it's a, it's a way for us here in the church to meet the needs of the body. Barnabas appears mainly in the book of Acts, which we know is written as part of, of, of part two to Luke's gospel. And it was written as a history of the early Christian church. Barnabas also appears in several of, of Paul's letters, but we know that Barnabas was a native of Cyprus. He was a Levite. He's first mentioned in, the, in, the, in Acts as a, as a member of the early Christian community in Jerusalem, and we're told, we're introduced by, uh, to Barnabas by being told that he sold some land and he, that he owned, and he gave the proceeds to the community. So that's sort of one of the first things he did was he, he sold some land that he had, and he gave the proceeds to help benefit the body. And so ben, uh, Barnabas wasn't his birth name, Joseph was his birth name, but it was his nickname, and it means the son of encouragement. So how encouraging do you have to be that actually becomes your name, it becomes how you're known, what a legacy to leave, what an example to follow. I wonder what people would nickname me. Do you wonder what people would nickname you? The ministry, the Barnabas ministry here, began with a donation from some members of the church who wanted us to have resources to meet to the needs of the people as they came up. People who struggled with an illness or a job loss or, or things like that. And it became a budget line item that we continue to fund for that purpose. But again, more than just money. Could be a, a ride to the grocery store, cooking a meal for someone who is sick. Whatever someone in the family needs because that's what we do as a family. And it's a way to serve, it's a way to encourage, it's a way to help out. Because that's what families do. This shouldn't really be extraordinary, it should be typical. It's essentially modeling out what the church should look like. As we read a couple of weeks ago, and you'll see everything we're talking about here in this scripture, 
In Acts 2, the fellowship of the believers, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer, both together and alone. This speaks to the spiritual disciplines we talked about developing. They studied the word of God. They were people who prayed. As a result, they developed real community. And then it says, as a result of that, verse 43, everyone was filled with awe at the many wonders and signs performed by the apostles. As a result, what happened is exactly what Peter talked about, what we just read. People were changed by the hope that they had, and so they were witnessing, inevitably, just by the way they were living. And it said the result of that is people were filled with awe. Verse 44, all the believers were together. They had everything in common. They sold property and possessions to give to anyone who had need. And we know Barnabas was one of the first ones to do this. Listen, this is what families do. Families meet needs. If someone is your fa- in your family is struggling, what do you do? You find the best way to help that person, right? And so they did this continually. This was a way of life. It was not occasional behavior, Every day, verse 46, they continued to meet together in the temple courts. They broke bread in their homes and they ate together with glad and sincere hearts, praising God and enjoying the favor of all the people. That's very important. They were not reluctant. They weren't doing this out of compulsion or out of guilt. They had glad and sincere hearts. They were praising God. And as a result of this authentic community because that's attractive when you live with a real love in a world that's so careless and people like we said this this overarching theme and you know Darren kind of tracks these things each year he says this is the you know the theme of the, of your year of preaching and he always kind of distills it down and he said this this year it's been about being fully known and fully loved and we just you know the holy spirit does that i'm not consciously thinking about that But that's the truth deep down inside. We want that. And in a community of fellowship of believers, we should have that. And so it said they continued to praise God. And as a result, the people around them were impacted eternally. And it says the Lord added to their number daily those who were being saved. People got saved. The community grew. And the process continued. So the question is, what are we committed to? Because we've said again and again, and you know, this stuff isn't new. It's that, you know, scripture tells the same story again and again about a God who relentlessly pursues us because he has a great love for us. And so we can say we love God and we can say we trust God, but what are we doing with our time, with our resources? What are we doing with everything we've been given, which has all been given by God? After spectacularly failing Jesus by denying that he even knew him, and I I love Peter. I identify with Peter more than anyone. I mean, he was, you know, well-intentioned, but such a knucklehead. Really. I mean, just always, it's like, Peter, just shut up for five seconds, man. Just... But can you imagine being best friends with someone, living with them and being taught by them, believing they were the son of God, and then being so fearful that you would deny ever even knowing that person? If I did that to one of my best friends and they came back around, I would probably try to avoid them. I would probably be so embarrassed and ashamed by the way I behave that I would run and hide. But the story of Peter's denial and then his restoration says a lot about Peter and a lot about Jesus and a lot about their relationship.
Because it said that Peter wanted to be near Jesus so badly that he couldn't even wait for the boat to get to the shore. In John 21, verse 7, it says, When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he put on his outer garment, for he was stripped for work, and threw himself into the sea. Oh, to have that kind of love for Jesus. So I want to read this exchange in John 21, verses 15 through 17. When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. And he said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? And Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. And Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. Now I want to draw your attention to several points. First one is that it doesn't matter what mistakes you've made in your past. It doesn't matter how many times you may have denied Jesus. You'll notice that Peter denied Jesus three times and Jesus restored him three times in this exchange. What matters is that you understand the grace of God in such a powerful way that you are in such a hurry after you mess up to run into his arms to find forgiveness and peace and unconditional love. That that reality of being fully known and fully loved is a reality we can experience with the love of Christ. That this is how Jesus loves each of us. And if we understand that, and when we understand that, no matter how we mess up, we will rush back into his presence. And the other point is that it's not just so much about what we say, because everyone says they love God. If we do, the scripture is saying something should then happen as a result. In this exchange, after Jesus asked the question, do you love me? He does not just accept the answer. Instead, he poses a challenge. Essentially saying, if what you say is true, then here's what you ought to do. We see this whole thing several times throughout Scripture. John 14, 15, if you love me, keep my commandments. Another translation, it says, if you love me, you will obey my teaching. Again, that's why I always tell, you know, we, 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 we don't want to not focus on the, the diff, living different. And, and of course, this morning, that's what we're going to talk about is, is the way we live and serving and all those things. But if we don't get the first part, if we don't get the inner let it shine, if we don't realize that this is a process of submission to God and allowing him to work, then we, we just become like the Pharisees. So the outward reality is something we, we ought to we ought to seek after, and, and it is something we, we want to see in our lives. Paul uses not only himself, but the example of other changed lives to demonstrate the power of the gospel. But it's not just about outward change. The Pharisees changed outwardly, and Jesus said they were whitewashed tombs. It's about outward change as a result of an inward change. And so in the, in the book of James, in the first chapter... In the, in the same chapter where he tells us to be doers of the words, not just hearers, deceiving yourself. In other words, what he's saying is like, look, if you hear this stuff, but you don't do, do it, you're just fooling yourself. You're just playing games. You're just playing church. It's not real if, it doesn't, if, it doesn't, if it's not followed up with action. 
And so in verse 27, he says this, religion that is pure and undefiled before God the Father is this, to visit orphans and widows in their affliction and to keep oneself unstained from the world. In other words, you ought to care for people. You ought to care for the most vulnerable. And you ought to live differently so that the the world, you're unstained from the world. In the previous verse, he says this, and this is convicting stuff. If anyone thinks he is religious and does not bridle his tongue but deceives his heart, this person's religion is worthless. Imagine that. He's saying, you can say you love Jesus and you can say you trust Jesus, but what's the stuff that comes out of your mouth? Is it hate-filled? Are you sharing the gospel with gentleness, respect? We said before, is your main concern to win an argument or to win a soul when you share the gospel? Jesus expects something of each of us. Are you feeding the sheep? If you've been a Christian for any length of time, and it's again, it begins with falling in love with God, and as a result of our love for God, we see these things. It's not a way to earn God's love, and I'm going to talk about that. Chuck Swindoll summarizes the exchange with Jesus and Peter by making some observations. He says these three commands, often translated the same way, are subtly very different. The first time Jesus says it, the Greek literally means pasture or tend the lambs. Verse 15. This Greek word for pasture is in the present tense. It denotes a continual action of tending and feeding and caring for animals. Believers are often referred to as sheep throughout Scripture. Psalm 95, 7, right? For he is our God, and we are the people of his pasture, the flock under his care. John 10, 11, Jesus is the good shepherd, the door of the sheepfold. By describing his people as lambs, he is emphasizing their nature as immature and vulnerable and in need of tending and care. The second time, the literal meaning is tend my sheep. In this exchange, Jesus was emphasizing tending the sheep in a supervisory capacity. Not only feeding, but in a sense protecting or or, uh, uh, controlling. I hate to use that word because it has a negative connotation. But but it expresses the full scope of of a pastoral oversight. Both in Peter's future and in all who would follow him. In any kind of ministry. And we're all, we've said, we're all ministers. If you're a Christian, you're a minister of the gospel. Peter follows Jesus' example and repeats this same Greek word, which is poimino, in his first pastoral letter to the elders of the churches of Asia Minor, when he says, be shepherds of God's flock that is under your care, serving as overseers. It's a, it's a sense of, of understanding the needs, of having oversight of, so that you know who, what the needs are, that you have a personal connection, so you're aware how best to care for those people. It's a responsibility and the third time, the literal translation is to, to pasture the sheep. Here, Jesus combines different Greek words to make clear the job of the shepherd of the flock of God. They are to tend, they are to care for, and they are to provide spiritual food for God's people. From the youngest lambs to the full-grown sheep. It's a continual action to nourish and care for their souls, bringing them into the fullness of spiritual maturity. This is the task set before Peter and all of us as shepherds, and it's made clear by Jesus' commands and the words he chooses. We are called to tend, to care for, and to feed. Obviously, the spiritual food is the word of God. 
That's why it's so critical. Peter declares that Christians are to desire the pure spiritual milk of the word so that by it we can mature in our salvation. 1 Peter 2.2. As early as the book of Deuteronomy, we see the Lord, Lord describing his word as food for his people who do not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds from his mouth. In Deuteronomy 8, I believe that's verse 3. Jesus reiterates this thought in his temptation in the wilderness in Matthew 4.4, which we talked about. when We talked about the importance of knowing the word of God to fight against temptation. That Jesus himself, when he's tempted, he, he expresses that man does not live on food alone, but the word of God, food for our souls. And so this is about the need to learn and grow and mature in our understanding. You know, I have a friend, and I've shared this with you before. He says, you know, there are some people who are Christians for 50 years, and there are some people who are Christians for a year 50 times over. They never change. They never mature. They're around church their whole lives, and it's the same as like it was the first time because it's just a habit. It's just something they do. You know, on Tuesdays we play bingo on Sundays we go to church. It's not life-changing. It's compartmentalized. Only when we develop this heart for others as Peter did can we fully express and realize our love for the Lord Jesus. It didn't matter what Peter's mistakes were. It matters that he knew that the best way to respond when you see Jesus, no matter how much you messed up, is you get out of that boat, doesn't matter, and you rush to Jesus and you find that person who fully knows you and fully loves you. And that love changes everything. That's the gospel, folks. And so the Barnabas ministry has opportunities that come up, sometimes for a ride or help with car trouble, light home repairs. Sometimes it's paying a bill or help with groceries. But we can only do this if we have people who are willing to help and resources to spend. But believe me, it's more than writing a check. That's only one way. Listen, our church isn't a big success if we have 10,000 people on a Sunday, though that would be great, and those are 10,000 souls. It's not a success if we have millions of dollars to spend on ministry, though that would be great and resources are needed. It would not just be great if we had intelligent and knowledgeable people about the Bible, if, if the church was filled with scholars, though that would be great too. These are all good things, lots of people, lots of money, and lots of knowledge, but it's only if what we do with those things honors God. It's only if we're doing the right things with those people and that money and that knowledge that we are successful in the eyes of God. What makes a church successful is how well, well we are living out the Great Commission to be and make disciples. Are we living and are we loving the way Jesus did? Do you love people well? It's as simple as that. It begins there without qualification. Not just the people like you, not just the people who are easy to like. Do you love people well? You've heard me say that what I pray for more than anything is a heart like Jesus because I don't have a heart like Jesus. Because I don't see people the way he does naturally. Because some people, not any of you, but some people, believe it or not, are hard to love. I'm one of those people, my poor wife. And let us not grow weary of doing good, for in due season we will reap if we did not give up. So then, as we have opportunity, let us do good to everyone, and especially to those who are of the household of faith. Galatians 6, 9, 10. I want, I want someone to make that their life verse. 
You know, we make our life verses, you know, you know Jeremiah 29, 11. It's all about us. I want my life's verse to be, whenever I can, am I doing good to everyone? Let me make this clear. You do not have to be in vocational ministry to be serving Jesus. You do not have to be doing a church-related event. Listen, you are serving Jesus when you raise your kids to love God. When you pray with them, when you read the word with them, when you love them well, you are sharing the gospel. When uh, you are sharing Jesus, obviously, when you're encouraging a coworker, when you're willing to share your testimony and your struggle with others. Every day of living can and should be in service to God. Paul tells us that in Romans 12:1. I appeal you to therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God which is your spiritual worship. In other words, Paul's saying, this isn't part of your life. This is your whole life. You give him everything. Here's the struggle. I have three kids. My wife and I right now each work multiple jobs. We are not immune to busyness. I'm not up here removed from this whole thing telling you it like it's easy to do. I get it. And I understand seasons of life are busy. And I understand that life can get chaotic for a period. But again, and I'm, I'm going to, I say I am an equal opportunity annoyer, but it's really the Holy Spirit is an equal opportunity convictor. And so I'm going to make a statement that's probably going to include every single person in this room. And what I'm about to say, hopefully you understand my point, but what I'm about to say is probably going to convict every one of us. It should. It convicts me. I've literally heard every single one of the excuses. And listen, I'm not saying these aren't true, but listen, follow me on this and, and we'll wrap it up. You'll hear me wrap this point up. We're not anywhere close to wrapping this thing up yet. <laughs> I've literally heard people say this. I've heard young single people say, I'm young and so I'm busy with school and I'm working at the same time. I just have no time. Like people young, single, and it's true. You know, I got school and work. You know, I just, I'd love to get plugged in the church at some point, but you know, I'm just, I just don't have the time with school and work and everything. Then I've heard married couples say, well, we're newly married. We're adjusting to life as a couple. We're trying to learn about each other. Right now, we just want to come and, you know, be ministered to at the church. Then I've heard people with young kids, which is the common thing. It's tough with the kids. It's hard to get them to church, to get them to sit still. I mean, life is chaotic. Then what happens when the kid gets older? The parents' jobs get more demanding because why? They've moved up the corporate ladder. Now they have more responsibility at work. Now they're bosses. They have people under them. They have to work more hours. Oh, you know, I'd love to serve, but, you know, work is, is just crazy right now. But, you know, at some point, things are going to slow down. And then I've heard older folks, kids moved out, retired. Well, you know, we travel a lot. We're not around so much. We really can't commit to anything. Did I include it? Did I? Is there anybody I missed in that? Now, what am I trying to say? Am I trying to make people feel bad? No, absolutely not. Am I trying to, to, to make you feel guilty? Am I trying to say that these people are intentionally trying to avoid serving? Sometimes maybe, but more often than not, you know what I think? I think we just don't see the barrel of spiritual. I think we don't see the opposition to us being connected to the things that are life-giving. And I think that deep down inside, we keep thinking that someday life's going to slow down. Someday we're going to have a little bit more resources, a little bit more time, and we race through life, and that day never comes. And we get to the end having every intention of having, you know, given a little more and served a little more, but life just got away from us. I think that's what happens. People, I don't think people are, you know, malicious about it. 
I think we just don't know that these things are life-giving. That we need to understand there are over 200 people connected to this church. And if everyone did a little something, if everyone gave faithfully, do you know how much a difference we would be making? Because you've heard me say again, the equation is submission is greater than or equal to your level of effectiveness. That's the mathematical Right? That's the, that's the equation to be effective for Jesus. Everybody says, I want to be effective for Jesus. I want my life to make a difference. I want to die and hear him say, well done, my good and make faithful servant. That only happens if you submit. If you surrender fully. And that doesn't mean you submit when it, when it makes sense, when you can see in front of you. That means, and it, you, don't, you don't wake up one day and get there, but that means you develop a trust without borders. That means you start with the little decisions and the little steps and you say, God, you know, here's what I want to do. Here's what my flesh says, but here's what the word says and here's what the spirit says and I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to move this way for once in my life and I'm just going to see what it looks like. And as you begin to walk that way, you, you realize, listen, I'm not telling you to do this stuff for me. I'm telling you to do this stuff for you. Listen, we need more help with kids' church, with youth group, with setup, with breakdown, with technical ministry, with Barnabas. Mobile ministries needs more volunteers to serve the homeless. There's a group that goes out to nursing homes to do ministry. They need more help. We need people to facilitate and host more community groups. It'd be great if we had more people involved in midweek services, more people at prayer time. We had like eight folks. Again, we can't all do everything. But you should be giving cheerfully, the Bible says. You should be serving, not just in your everyday life, but also serving the local church family. One easy way to serve, when's the last time you invited somebody to come to church with you? What if next week everybody just asked one person to come to church? And if only 10% of those people showed up, we, we wouldn't fit in this room. We're trying to raise funds to purchase a building to do more ministry. We need financial commitments for that. It's not my church. It's the Lord's church, and it's each of our local community. We're a family. It's not about what I want to see or Pastor Jamie or the leadership. We all together determine what this church looks like. And if we stay here or if we grow somewhere else. Now, my family and I have committed our lives to serving Jesus. Right now, that's here at South Coast Community Church. And honestly, I hope and pray that's his will for us to remain in this role until he calls us home. And we will, whether there's a thousand people or ten people here, we will c continue to commit our time and our resources. And I'm not, I'm not saying that for, for applause. We've done that well before it was our jobs. We've been part of this thing since 1999 when it began. And over these... 20 years, for 10 years we've served in, in roles and it was always volunteer the first 10 years. I've set up and broken down for this service over a thousand times. I've acted in dozens of dramas. Me and Tab, we go back, man, we should have a bloopers reel, the dramas we did. We've taught youth group. We've served in leadership roles. Becky's done kids camp, youth group, kids trip, worship ministry, communications, organizes the Sunday service. We've both served at mobile ministries before. My daughter Amelia serves in mobile ministry. She also sings in the worship team. My son helps out with the kids downstairs. He used to help out with kin camp. I'm not saying this because I want your applause. I'm saying this because, man, we do this joyfully, and it is the highlight and it is the privilege of our lives. And we did not always just do the stuff we enjoyed, or we did not always just do the stuff because it was our job. 
praise God that now we're able to make a living serving Jesus, but that's just what we do. Every year, I try to give more money to charity than I did the year before. This church and other charities, Teen Challenge, we sponsor a child, other things. I started with trying to give 10%, and I worked my way up from there. And now each year we do that. And again, I'm not saying this because I want you to, to applaud. I'm not saying I'm saying this because I'm not asking you to do something that I myself, that we ourselves are not living out because it's so fulfilling and it's so rewarding, and there is no better life. And I'm telling you this because I didn't always live for Jesus. Hello? I was really, really good at a long time living just for me. I guarantee you I was worse than everybody in this room. Me and Jamie. Jim. I'm going to add Jamie. Let me asterisk with that. I, <laughs> In his 1986 book, Desiring God, John Piper talked about this idea of Christian hedonism. Now, hedonism itself is defined as this. Hedonism is the pursuit of pleasure, sensual self-indulgence. Hedonism is essentially the ethical theory that pleasure and the sense of, and the sense of satisfaction of desires is the highest good and proper aim of human life. Now, now listen to this. It's the sense that pleasure or satisfaction of desires is the highest good and the proper aim of human life. When I was an atheist, I thought that this was true. So I tell people, when I was an atheist, I lived with integrity. My worldview determined my actions. And my actions were that I fully believed that statement. That the chief aim and the highest good was to fulfill every desire. And you know what? I told people that. And by God's grace and with his help, I try now to live out this new worldview that I profess. And so I am not boasting what I do for, for my sake, but for God's sake. Because if he can change a guy like me, and I use myself as an example because this is my context. This is what I know the most, my story. Not to talk about me as an individual, but as a trophy of the grace and mercy of God. Pastor Jamie and I share our stories not because we want people to know about our stories, because we want you to know we were morons. That most of our lives, the only examples we were of the worst things you should do. We were like, don't date those guys. Don't let your daughters date those guys. Don't be like those guys. That's an example of what not to do. That's what we were. And I tell you this, because who we are now is not who he wants where I love. Jamie says it this way. I'm not yet the man I should be, but by the grace of God, I'm not the man I once was. What I'm trying to convey with my heart to you is that who you were does not define you. The mistakes you made does not define you. If your worldview shifted and you've given your life to Christ, then give your life to Christ. So for John Piper, he talks about this idea of Christian hedonism, and he, and he summarizes the philosophy of the Christian life as this. God is most glorified in us when we are most satisfied in him. What I thought was true as an atheist was not true. And I found that out existentially, experientially, and then, of course, spiritually. 
It was an empty, nihilistic view that led to addiction. It was never fulfilling. It was filled with the promise that the next time will fill that void. And it was an endless chase year after year after year. And it doesn't have to be drugs that you're chasing after. It's just that, that idea of, of, of sensuality, of desire. It's a chasing after the wind. It's meaningless. I love Ecclesiastes, attributed to King Solomon, trying to find meaning and purpose throughout life. And listen, nothing's changed. There's no new sin. There's no new desire. Since the dawn of time, people have sought meaning and money, sex, power, accomplishments, and intellect. Same thing. Nothing's changed. There's no new thing that we seek after. We think that if we have enough money, if we have enough sex, if we have enough power, if we're accomplished enough, if we're smart enough, that somehow we won't feel like a fraud, that the void inside of us will be filled, and we chase it, and we chase it, and we chase it, and it's never filled. Solomon had more money, more power. He built more monuments. He was more brilliant. And here's what he says. In chapter 2, I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure. My heart took delight in all of my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and everything I had toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless, a chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. In the last chapter, chapter 12, verse 8, meaningless, meaningless, says the teacher. Everything is meaningless. And finally, he closes with this thought. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. Fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of all mankind. Fear God. Have a reverent understanding of who God is, and then do what he tells you to do. It's the same message again and again. If you love me, obey my commands. Feed my sheep. Don't just live for your own self-interest as you once did. That's what the world does. See, we may say we're Christians, but if all our time is effort and resources are spent chasing the same things the world chases after, we haven't found our identity in Christ. Jesus says, if you say you love me, care for my people. Practically speaking, that means give and serve. Not either or, but both and. And you know what? Develop that. Try to do it more and more. Why? Because that's the model Jesus showed us. He came to serve, and he gave his life up for us, and he asked that we give up our lives for him and the sake of the gospel. Do we view the world with spiritual eyes, or are we still exercising an immature faith? In Mark 8, Jesus is talking about spiritual truths. The people don't understand them. And God bless Peter. This is the exchange. He began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and must be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed and after three days rise again. And he said this plainly. I love how it's in there. In other words, this wasn't a parable. It wasn't confusing. It wasn't tough to understand. Jesus said this plainly. And Scripture says, And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. Can you imagine that? Jesus, wait a minute. I need to give you a rebuke, Jesus. I love Peter. He just reacts. He means well. But in his ignorance and his inability to see spiritual truths and his lack of faith and his immaturity, because he doesn't like the way that Jesus is going to do things, 
It doesn't make sense to him. He wants it to happen a different way. And Jesus immediately rebukes him. Why? Because he's a hindrance. So Jesus wastes no time in correcting him. Sometimes we may not understand. We may, may not want things to happen in a certain way. But it's not about our plan. It's about his. Remember last week we said God's will will never take you to where his grace will not sustain you. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and he said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Peter, you you continually look at things the way man does. You're not seeing spiritually. Before Jesus explains what it means to be a disciple, it's important that you see this. That you cannot look at the things in the world the same way you once did. This is why before we can let our light shine before men, we better make sure we've allowed that true light to shine in our own lives and change us. And that doesn't mean we're waiting until we're perfect to begin ministry. But we're waiting to be saved. We're waiting to repent and trust in Jesus. And only after we have been saved and we begin to read the word of God and allow the soil of our hearts to be prepared so that fruit of the Spirit can be manifest. Only after that, Jesus says, and calling the crowd to him with his disciples, he said to them, if anyone would come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. For whoever would save his life will lose it. But whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. What does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what can a man give in return for his soul? I understand that the world is filled with people who are forfeiting their souls for the gains of the world. But what I'm afraid is that too often the church is filled with people who are deceived in the same way. I promise that I will always tell you the truth even if you don't like me for it. Because true love is willing to tell somebody something that might make you uncomfortable, that might make them not look at you with affection all the time, but it's saying something that's in their best interest despite what they do with it. And so because I love you, I'll continue to speak truth. And the reality is, I've looked back and I've preached over 500 sermons at this point, and I've talked about money less than 10. And I should be ashamed of myself for not talking about giving and tithing more often because Jesus talked about it all the time. And I think the fear is that I'm so afraid that people think churches only care about money. And for many churches and pastors, maybe that's true and it's heartbreaking. The false preachers on TV who tell people to send money and they'll get rich or send money or they'll get healed. And so there's a hesitancy to talk about money because we don't want to be seen as worldly. But make no mistake, giving is an act of worship and it is expected in the life of mature Christians. When Jesus says, give to Caesar what is Caesar's and to God what is God's, it means some of it belongs to God, a portion of what you have, knowing it all comes from him and we're only called to be stewards, is expected by Jesus to be given to support the work of the local church, the priest, the temple, the poor, and the needy. Now this sermon is about letting our light shine and we do that through loving. And practically speaking, love means service. And we serve by meeting needs, by supporting the work of the ministry. That takes resources, and it takes all of us doing our part. If not, what happens is 
a small group of people do most of the work and, do, and give most of the money. Now, not only does that deny people the blessing of being an active part of the community, but it's not the way things ought to, to go. I've literally told people before who wanted to give more money not to. I've done it several times, in fact. Because I would rather have 10 people each give 100 bucks to meet a need than the same guy writing a $1,000 check every single time. You understand what I mean? Now, if God's blessed you and you have more resources, then that's, that's different. There's an expectation. But that doesn't mean that every single time it's the same people because it's not the church of 10 people. And it's not the same 10 or 20 people should, should be serving. Now, if you're here and you're new and you're, this, I'm not talking to you. I'm talking to people who consider this their church home. Now, look, these are not my teachings. The Bible's the authority in this church. May it always be the authority in, church, in this church. And this is what the church is supposed to be. We want God to save our children. We want God to save our family and our friends. We expect him to do his part. But what are we doing? We spend thousands of dollars a year on vacations and cable TV and eating out and we give God a few hundred bucks. We spend eight hours a week at the gym or some other hobby and we spend two hours a week total on our spiritual lives. On a Sunday, if our kids don't have sports that week or football isn't on or it's not a really sunny day. We can work 10 hours overtime for a bigger paycheck, but we can't find an hour to help serve the homeless or to pray with our brothers and sisters at church or to leave early to pick up somebody who needs a ride. Now, please understand me. Nothing ever should be done out of guilt or compulsion. That's never the point. And I'm not trying to make anyone feel bad, but conviction and being challenged are what the Holy Spirit does. But it's always to motivate us toward godly living. And that's why Paul says, look, the God who gave his son, he's not trying to hurt you. If he tells you to do something, it's because it's in your best interest. So have a little faith and walk that out, even if it doesn't make sense to you. Stop seeing things the way Peter does. Have spiritual eyes. And so here's the tension. It's not about leaving and feeling like you can never be good enough or you can never do enough. This balance. We don't do things to earn God's love. We do these things as a result of being recipients and changed by his unconditional love when we were unworthy of that. So the Bible says, while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. Talk about dying for doing something for somebody who can't do anything for you. Jesus died for us when we contributed nothing but our sin. And so now we have the privilege and the responsibility because we should see it as an honor and a blessing, but as a responsibility to serve and give to the Lord. You see, legalism on one hand is the Pharisees because they tithe and they did the religious stuff they were supposed to do, but they didn't do it out of love for God or for people. They did it out of obligation. They did it out of superiority. They did it out of wanting people to look highly upon them. Motive is everything. And so then on the other end of the spectrum, you have people who say they love God, but they live no different at all than the world does. There's no change whatsoever in their lives. They still love money, and they still love themselves, and they still find their value not in Christ, but in what they do. You may have heard this before. If you went to court and were charged with being a Christian, would there be found enough evidence to convict you? 
The world continues to live as if there were no God, and the Bible calls those people fools. The fool says in his heart, there is no God. I heard Rabbi Zacharias share this before about the secularization of the whole world. He says, first dentistry was painless, then bicycles were chainless, carriages were horseless, and many laws enforceless. Next, cookery was fireless, telegraphy was wireless, cigars were nicotineless, and coffee caffeineless. Soon origins were seedless, the putting greed was weedless, the college boy hatless, the proper diet fatless. New motor roads are dustless, the latest steel is rustless, our tennis courts are sodless, and our new religion godless. John thirteen thirty five. by this everyone will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Church, love is not a feeling or an emotion, it's an action. If you love for somebody, you desire what is best for them, you seek to help them. Don't leave here and let this be information. The worship team can come up. Let it be transformation. Each week should be followed up with a question. If you're a believer, if this is your church family, this is, and if, this is, if you're a believer, if this is your church family and this is a biblical teaching, if it's not biblical, just ignore it completely. But if it's a biblical teaching, every week you should be asking yourself this, how can I apply this in my life? What can I do differently? Is this something I'm living out currently? And so where can I serve? How can I give? Matthew 6, 21, for where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. God wants your heart. What are you holding back? I want to close again like I did last week with the words of the prophet Isaiah, chapter 60. Arise, shine, for your light has come. And the glory of the Lord has risen upon you. For behold, darkness shall cover the earth and thick darkness the people, but the Lord will arise and his glory will be seen upon you. My prayer is that people continue to see the glory of the Lord when they look at the lives of each of us here at South Coast and that we continue to encourage each other to fall deeper in love with Jesus our Lord. May we be most satisfied in Jesus for that, so that through our lives, he will be most glorified in us. Please stand.